Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to First Presbyterian Church of San Antonio on this the fourth Sunday of Advent. Can you believe that Christmas is almost here? It is wonderful to be here. Thank you to the Bell family for lighting our candles today. I, I'm amazed. I, I, I always... I always feel a little bit set back when we get to that fourth Advent candle. It's, it's where did the time go? How did, how did we get here so quickly? But then again, I look at those candles. I look at the, the decorations around the church, the, the poinsettias, and I think about all the hands that have gone into making this celebration not only special, but visible and tangible. I want to thank the Sanctuary Flower Committee and all the, all the ladies who who hung these wreaths and who set everything out, I guarantee it was not I who did any of this. This is not, some, this is not in my wheelhouse. I am, I am happy to preach, I'm happy to teach, but when it comes to beautifying things and drawing your attention in those ways, I thank God for the people he's put in this church because it is a wonderful way to, to just share in those, in those bits and pieces, those reminders of God's glory in this season. Well, as we come again to the Word of God as we think about the coming of Christ, you'll remember that last week I mentioned that when I was in the grocery store with my daughter Elle, I saw this magazine. Uh, it's an edition, a special edition of Life magazine, and it's got a, a picture or a painting of Jesus from the 13th to 14th century. And above that it says, Jesus, who do you say that I am? And I, of course, when I saw that in the grocery store line, that caught my attention. Uh, Time and Life and Newsweek have for years put out special editions around Christmas and Easter times like that. But I was particularly taken by this question on the front of this year's edition. Who do you say that I am? The question is not one invented by the editors of Life magazine. Rather, it's a question that Jesus himself posed to Peter and to the other disciples in Mark chapter 8. One day, Jesus turned to his disciples and he asked, who do people say that I am? So using his own question to the disciples, Life Magazine has found a clever way to ask the question and open a debate on who is Jesus. Now the conclusion of the magazine's editors is this. To some, Jesus is the Son of God. To others, Jesus was just a man. To others, he's just a myth of propaganda. And to others, he's just an idea. And those, in, those opinions are all very interesting, but there's one opinion above all that we should seek, and that is, who does God say that Jesus is? Well, last week, we started talking about the birth of Jesus as an act of divine revelation. And what that means is that in it, God is revealing something to us. It's an act of divine communication. God is trying to tell us something through the incarnation. And what God is communicating to us, what God is revealing to us through the incarnation is this. This is who God really is. The apostle Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God that he is the icon or the picture of God. He is God's own self-portrait. In Jesus, God has given us a picture of himself so that we can imagine, so that we would recognize him in a crowd, so that we would be able to distinguish him from a world full of imposters. God wanted to show us who he is. 
But that's not all that Paul says about Jesus. He also says that in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see, Jesus was more than just a picture of God. We all know that it's one thing to see a picture of someone, but it's another thing to meet them face to face in the flesh. And if there's anything that we've learned over these last two years, it is that Zoom meetings, video calls, they all work okay when necessary, but it's just not the same as being together face to face. Seems like last, this time last year, people were debating whether or not they could get together face to face for Christmas. Isn't it better just to be able to be together in the flesh? And so Jesus was not just the image, a two-dimensional picture of God. He was God in the flesh, 3D. And today we're going to be talking about the incarnation as the Word made flesh being the Word. The Gospel of John, the first chapter, verses 1 through 3 and verse 14, says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then taking up the 14th verse of the same chapter. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O oh Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Today, O oh God, we ask that you would speak your word for your servants are listening. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. When the Apostle John sat down to write the story of Jesus' life, he began with these words, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because from the beginning, John wanted us to know that the story of Jesus is not just a story of another man, of another preacher, another teacher, another, another leader. That even in Jesus, there is something infinitely bigger. He said that Jesus of Nazareth is the word of God made flesh. Pastor and teacher John Piper says that of all the New Testament writers, the apostle John put the weightiest doctrines in the simplest language. What that means and what John means is that Jesus was the Word of God made flesh. What does that mean? Well, let's break it down. A word is what? A word is a vehicle of expression. Whether spoken or written, by our words we tell people who we are. We tell people how we feel. We tell people what we want to happen. We tell people what we want to teach and what we want others to know. Words are the expression of our will, our intent, our, our affections, and our judgments. We see this in the Holy Scripture, which is God's Word written. And in the same way, 
When John says that Jesus is the word of God, he is saying that Jesus is the expressed will of God. Jesus is the expressed will of God. He wants, uh, he is what God wants us to know about who he is, what he wants, what's important, and how he feels. What God wants us to know about himself, he expresses through his word. He expresses through Jesus. Jesus is what God not only wants to show us, but to tell us about himself. But according to John, Jesus is not only the word of God, but the word of God made flesh. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now the theological term for the word becoming flesh is the word incarnation. You've heard me say this before, but it literally means to be made flesh. As I mentioned several weeks ago, Texans understand this concept because you all know what chili con carne is, right? Chili with what? Meat. And what this means is that he was literally in the flesh, in meat. When John said that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, he says that he literally became that flesh, that substance. And that may sound a bit vivid, but let me put it in a different way. I once, go ahead and get that. They're going to want to hear this. Um, I, once heard a little, I once heard a story about a little boy who was terrified during a thunderstorm. And so he jumped out of bed and he ran into his mother and his father's room and he said, he said Dad, I'm scared. The thunder's crashing. The lightning's flashing. I, I don't know what to do. And his father said, son, don't be afraid. God will take care of you. And the little boy said, I know God will take care of me, but I need someone with some skin on. <laughs> well, after generation after generation of law and prophecy and miracles, God determined that he needed to put some skin on. And at the first Christmas, God the Holy Spirit performed the most mind-blowing biological and spiritual experiment that the universe has ever known to make God truly human and to make a man capable of being fully God. He reconciled sinful humanity with sinless divinity and he stitched flesh and spirit together and the word became flesh. So what is the word made flesh? If words are a way we communicate, the way we tell people who we are, what we want, what we think, what we want them to know, what's important, and Jesus is the word of God made flesh, then what is God's word made flesh telling us? Well, most importantly, what we need to understand is that by his word and by his, uh, by his word made flesh in Jesus Christ, God is telling us, this is who I am. First, by his word made flesh, God is telling us, I want you to know me. I want you to know me. The incarnation, Christmas, is God's way of saying, 
I refuse to be unknowable. God became flesh to show himself to us. You see, the good news is not primarily an invitation for man to do anything. It is supremely a declaration of what God has done for us. Through the incarnation, God has said, for too long I have been a mystery to you. I've been too far off and too abstract. You've not understood my covenant because it was just too strange. And even though you've known of my presence as a force or as a higher power or as a ground of being, I'm going to put my love in terms you can understand. Christmas was God's way of saying, once and for all, my children must know me. My children must know me. They must know that I am real. They must know that I am holy. And they must know that I care. So the incarnation of God's way is God's way of telling us, I want you to know me. But the incarnation was also God's way of saying, my children shall know me, but they shall not define me. They shall not define me. I am who I am, not who they so often make me out to be. God is telling us, people have told you things about me that were not true, and I've come to set the record straight. So John calls him the word because he is the living embodiment of who God is and what God wants. And therefore, to know God as he truly is, we must know Jesus. Through Jesus Christ, God wants to show us who he really is. And this is something we have to understand. Now, there's an ancient and popular notion that somehow the incarnation, the supernatural spirit taking on natural flesh, somehow that that diminishes the glory of God by putting the splendor of God in a plain brown paper wrapper. That by becoming human, God somehow became less. But one of our own covenant partners... New Testament scholar, Dr. Jonathan King, if you don't know J.K. and Charm, you need to get to know them, but Dr. King has argued that by taking on human flesh, God did not become less, but rather he showed us more of who he really is. To summarize his argument, in his book, The Beauty of the Lord, Jonathan says, that the identity of God is revealed as much in his self-abasement and service as it is shown in his exaltation and rule. Because the incarnation, in the incarnation, God took on the perfect fitting form to show us his heart. In the incarnation, God took on the perfect fitting form to show us his heart. By his human life, God has taken on the form that best fits the reality of his self-giving love. 
And he, sell, and he says that Jesus is Israel's picture of God fleshed out. In Jesus Christ, God is not showing us less. He is showing us more. The incarnation is God's way of saying, this is who I am. I am the God who inspired the songs of the heavenly host, but I am lowly and born in a stable. I am the God who deserved to be surrounded by the famous, the rich, and the powerful, but chose to surround myself with the outcast, the poor, the simple, the hurting, and the lost. I am the God who could command the wind and the waves but would not exploit that power to crush my enemies or even to save myself from humiliation or pain. I am the God who can heal every disease but who endured the wounds of the world. I'm the God whose life could never be taken but who gives his life for our sakes. I'm the God who has everything but gave it up for the sake of righteousness, humility, and love. You see, God did not take on humanity to hide his true nature, but to reveal it. Because in that form, in the form of God made man, God incarnate, Emmanuel, he displayed his full compassion. So first, God is telling us, I want you to know me. Second, by his word made flesh, God is telling us, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. In a word, the incarnation is about credibility. You know what's interesting? The Bible tells us nothing about the life that Jesus lived from age 12 to 30. That entire season from the beginning of adolescence through young adulthood is not even treated in the Bible. Now, what was Jesus doing during those lost years between 12 and 30? The Bible doesn't tell us, but let me ask you this. Those of you for whom this applies, what were you doing between 12 and 30? I'll tell you what you were doing. You were doing the same thing I was doing. You're trying to figure it out, trying to figure out this life, trying to figure out what you're supposed to do, trying to figure out who you are. Can you imagine how that was for Jesus, trying to figure out what it means to be God in human form, what it means to be here? Many scholars refer to those lost years, to those years as the lost years. I think it feels like that for a lot of us. It's not necessarily that we're lost, but we're trying to figure it out. And I think that Jesus was going through what we go through. He was going through real life. He lived in a world of peer pressure and parent pressure. I mean, you think your mother puts expectations on you? What if you were the son of God? He lived in a world of friend groups. He lived in a world of mental illness. You know, most of us don't remember what it was like to be a baby, do we? But none of us will forget what it was like to be a teenager. And if you're in middle school or high school right now, you're in it. I think Jesus spent those so-called lost years figuring it out. The book of Hebrews says that he was made perfect in suffering. That means he was made perfect in going through this human life and growing up. 
And therefore, Hebrews can also say that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. I mean, this is a, this is a God who knows what it's like to have a job and to be poor and homeless. This is a God who wept because his friends died and who knew people with cancer and leprosy and heart disease. He knows what it's like to be a refugee. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to be hated and spat upon. This is a God who knows what it's like to be tortured. And this is a God who knows what, is li- what it is like to die. To die a human death. So how can people like us relate to an eternal God? And how can an eternal God relate to people like us? How can he relate to a child, to a teenager, to a young adult, to a senior adult, to a middle-aged person? Well, he became one. He did not send a representative or a stand-in or a stunt double. He came himself, Emmanuel, God with us. It was God who was born in a stable. It was God who grew up and lived a human life. We tend to trust people more if we believe they understand us. And so the word became flesh so that he could walk in our shoes. He wants us to trust him. By his word made flesh, God is telling us, I get it. The Christmas story is not just about how God knows what it is like to be a baby, but it's a story about how God knows what it's like to be a human being, a teenager. He knows the limits of our endurance. He knows what we're up against. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our circumstances. He knows our situations. He knows it all because he's been through it. The world doesn't need an insulated, apathetic God who lives out in space or on the top of Mount Olympus. We need the real God who knows what it's like to be one of us, who gets it, who empties himself to get down in the mud and the blood and the monotony and the stress of our lives just to prove how much he loves us. And so above all else, by his word made flesh, God is telling us, I love you. I love you. God lived our life, and he died our death to prove it. Paul writes that the proof of God's amazing love is this. The proof of God's amazing love is this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remember that when you remember that this is the God who not only knows the number of hairs on your head, but knows your name. This is the God who's walked in your shoes. And this is the God that you can call on right now. This is the God who loves you and who has the power to make a difference in your life, not just forever, but today. Paul writes that for our sake, He who had no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The holy became human so that humanity 
can become holy. Christ gave up everything he had, leaving heaven, becoming human, taking the penalty for our sin, dying on the cross, so that we get everything he has. His joy. His eternity. His relationship with the Father. For all that, he was born in a stable. Should we not trust him? In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. God was in him, and he was with us. Will you pray with me? Oh, loving God, we need a God with some skin on. We need a God who knows our trials, our tribulations, our joys, our hopes, our fears. We need a God who has proven not only how much he loves us, but that he has the power to make a difference in our lives. And Lord, at Christmas, we celebrate through your incarnation that by the word made flesh, you were telling us just that, that you are the God who loves us you are the God who can be trusted and that you want to be known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.